podcast contains mature content. Listener discretion is advised. Police are investigating a bizarre murder case in which as many as 16 young men have been killed. Bill Windsor reports. Investigators in Riverside County are still going over the records of eight murder cases, which may be the start of a bloody trail of 40 or more homosexual killings. Two men, Patrick Kearney and David Hill, wanted for questioning in two murders, surrendered here last Friday. Officers also wanted to talk to them about five other similar killings. Mutilated remains of five young men have been found in three other counties since 1975. But Sheriff Ben Clark says the two led his investigators to believe the suspects may be responsible for 30 to 40 killings. The sheriff isn't sure the final toll will be that high. Well, my guess is at least we'll double the number that we have identified in the series that we were working on originally. And, of course, beyond that, uh, really, I'd uh, hesitate to make any guess. That would be about 16, then. That's true. Sheriff, you talk about similarities in these cases. What similarities do you mean? In the original release that we had made, we'd identified a number of things that were similarities. Number one is that they were all young, that some of them had had uh, connections with the, uh, in the area of homosexual activity. Uh, There had been a single uh, gunshot wound to the head. They were nude. Uh, They had been tied up and they had been disposed of in plastic bags. There may or may not be 30 or 40 more bodies out here. If there are, no one knows now just where to start looking. Officers say only they could be about anywhere in Southern California. Bill Windsor, NBC News, Riverside, California. Hello, Twisted Humans! Do you find yourself wanting to know more about the latest murder, conspiracy, cult, or haunting? Then this is the podcast for you. We're bringing the most intense stories that will keep you up at night. Join us every Tuesday for a glass of wine and a dose of true crime. I'm Alicia. And I'm Sierra. And this is Twisted Twisted and Uncorked. Hello, and welcome to the jury room where we dissect some of the most heinous, some of the most unthinkable, and some of the most monstrous crimes to ever scar the earth. From cannibalistic serial killers to decades-old unsolved mysteries, these stories are sinister enough to keep you up at night. Alright, well welcome back to another Jury Room Aftermath episode. On this episode, we're visiting Patrick Wayne Kearney, the trash bag killer. Now, this guy was a sadistic human being, somebody that I hadn't heard of, and I've gotten a lot of feedback from people who hadn't heard of him either. So, even though we hadn't heard of him, one thing that we do want to do is also recognize the victims, because there were a lot of them, and from all different walks of life. So, Definitely, definitely don't want to forget about the victims. But before we get there, I'd like to introduce my guest. Today, I have the host of Stressed, Depressed, and Anxious Podcast. Why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself, where they can find you at, and all that good stuff. Hi, I am a local neighborhood baby, or summer, 
And my uh, podcast, as Kevin said, was Stress, Depressed, and Anxious. It is a mental health podcast. I focus on my day-to-day struggles with mental health. So you can hear about all of my hilarious hijinks and just any mental health topic um, that comes to mind. Sometimes I have guests. Sometimes it's just me solo. But it's a fun and wild ride. So I hope you guys will check it out. You can find me anywhere you like to listen to podcasts. Um, and you can go to my website, stressdepressedanxious.com, and get all those links as well and find out more about the show. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming on. I'm glad to have you. I know we've kind of been around the same community for what you've been around for over, a little over a year now, right? Ooh, a lot longer than that, actually. Is um, it? I've, yeah, I've been around since about 2019. Oh, well, then I'm new and you're not. So that's cool. Well, well, <laughs> no, glad- no, no. It, I, I was, I, again, it's kind of like our, our, you know, serial killer here. I was, <laughs> I was lesser known for a long time because I wasn't um, even on Twitter or anything like that. I wasn't even trying to get anyone to listen to anything. I was just kind of recording and posting. That makes sense. Well, I'm glad we finally get to sit down and do this. I know we've had, you know, some really positive interactions and I'm just, I'm glad that we get to sit down and finally do an episode together, you know? I am so excited too. Thank you so much for having me. So let's talk about your podcast for a little bit. So you say mental health, is it something that you've struggled with for a long time or is this something that you felt like you needed to put out to try to help somebody? No. So, well, it's really something that I've struggled with for a long time. Um, you know, I got to a point in my life too, where I was really, really, really struggling with, um, depression. And then, um, at another point in my life, you know, in my earlier twenties, I struggled a lot with anxiety, um, to the point where it was like really debilitating. It made it hard for me to, you know, do normal activities or just be somewhere or work or whatever. And um, I didn't recognize that it was, you know, clinical depression or that it was generalized anxiety disorder. Um, but because it became so debilitating, that was when I finally um, decided to seek help. And then I was able to explore that with, you know, a psychologist and find out that, yeah, you know, these are some of the um, things that you're suffering with. And so that helped me to better understand, you know, everything that was going on and what I was going through and how I could potentially help myself. Um, But one of the things that was just widely recommended across the board by professionals online, whoever, um, was just talking about it. And one of the harder things for me was like, oh, you know, everybody's like, talk to someone and talk to someone you trust or this and that. And that was really difficult for me because I was like, uh, well, I don't really trust a lot of people. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's like, I don't. And I also had that thing of like, you know, you don't want to burden someone, just be like a downer and like talk about like your mental health, um, you know, maybe to your friends or your family or people who just generally don't understand because it is something that is really stigmatized. And a lot of people just kind of you know, when you say you're depressed, they're kind of like, okay, well, just go take a walk and, you know, watch your favorite show and all will be well. Or if you're anxious, you know what I mean? Like people just don't have an understanding of the clinical side of it and how truly debilitating it could be, just like having any normal physical disease. So anyway, that made it really hard for me to want to talk to someone about it. However, I found that like there was that yearning in me to kind of get it out in some way, shape or form. And I used to journal a lot, but then, you know, once I discovered um, 
that I could record myself. I think I came across um, Anchor at some point. I was like, okay, um, I discovered that I could make a podcast. So I just was, like I said, recording and like I just from my phone um, and just kind of talking and getting things off my chest. And it was with no intention of anyone to listen to it. You know, like I said, I wasn't on any social media. I wasn't promoting anything. It was just something that I did. It was kind of like a diary, basically, in a sense. And so I was just recording and posting and whatever. It's like a personal audio journal. Um, And it wasn't until like, maybe like, I don't know how many episodes in, but not that many, um, that I got a message from someone. I think he was like in Switzerland or I don't even remember, Iceland, somewhere um, across the pond. And he had sent me this message saying how he could totally relate to something that I had said and, you know, how it was so helpful to know that he just wasn't alone and this and that. And it just really illuminated, first of all, the fact that people were listening. I was like, what the hell? (laughs) People people (laughs) listen to this. And then the second thing too was like, that's really nice, you know, because, you know, one of the reasons why I'm recording is because I, you know, sort of feel alone in my feelings. And that's something that depression and anxiety and things like that can do to you, just make you feel really isolated, like nobody understands you. So I was pumped to continue to record it because I was like, you know what, if even like one person listens to this and feels less alone, that also makes me feel great. And so it just kind of grew and blossomed from there. And it's what it is today. So yeah. Right. And that's, see, that's good though, because you're, you're right. Being depressed is, is stigmatized. Mental health is stigmatized. And while we're getting better about it now, I still don't think it's where it should be. You know what I mean? It's not, if you're sad, like you said, you know, go take a walk or, you know, sleep it off. You'll feel better in the morning. And it's like, it doesn't always work that way. Yeah. And even with anxiety, I remember reading a lot of things where people were saying like, you know, uh, take a deep breath. Like if you're having an anxiety attack, you know, do practice your breathing, take a deep breath and, and, you know, do things like that to calm yourself down. But really, if you look it up and it's a hundred percent true, um, in my experience, an anxiety attack feels very, very similar to a heart attack, almost the exact same way. You know, you're short of breath. You feel like you can't breathe. There's a pressure on your chest. Like it mimics all the symptoms of a heart attack. So much so that when I had my first uh, anxiety attack or two, I literally was in the emergency room thinking that I was having a heart attack. Um, and yeah, like they, they did all the vitals, like, you know, heart rate was super high, everything. And then, you know, they're able obviously to figure out like, no, you're not having a heart attack. It must be an anxiety attack, but these, that's how harsh it can be. And for those of you out there that have experienced that, I'm sure you can attest to that as well. And so, so somebody's telling you to like, take a deep breath, imagine having a heart attack and someone just telling you to practice your breathing. It's not so simple as it may seem, you know what I mean? Right. And there's absolutely. no just like, band-aid for it you know right and that's it is true anxiety attacks panic attacks they come out of nowhere and it affects everybody it's it and it's not just you know mental health is one of those things that they think that they put they seem to put people in a box but they don't realize that literally everybody from every walk of life suffers from some sort of mental health now it might not be on the clinical diagnosis side but everybody still struggles with it, you know? Absolutely. I mean, everything you see in here is reflect, 
is, uh, you know, kind of affecting you in some way, shape or form. And, you know, the world isn't always rosy. So (laughs) we deal with a lot. Um, And there's a lot of unprocessed things too, you know. Um, As you're a kid and you're a child and you don't understand things, you don't really process them that well. And then they kind of crop themselves up when you become an adult and you start to deal with other things and you're like oh you know it just reminds you of this and and you start to process things slowly throughout your life and that all affects you in some way shape or form and like you said everybody experiences mental health at one point or another um it may not be clinical with you know and it may be easily easier resolvable like you know because you people go through depression like in terms of grief right you may lose somebody in your life and you become uh you're grieving and through that grief you're you know very depressed but then you're able to you know sort of pull yourself out of it there's different forms of depression there's different forms of you know maybe you need to do a presentation and you're feeling anxious there's that's you know normal that does happen to everybody or to a lot of people, but it, it is not the same as the clinical aspect, which I think is what is also so confusing for people because they're like, I've been anxious before and this is what I did and it works for me. But it again, it's just very different when, you know, you're talking about like you went to the gym and you have a sore um, leg versus you broke your leg. You know what I mean? Like those are two different things um, and and the healing process is different and the treatment is different. So I think that's where sometimes people get confused. But if you go and you educate yourself, it does help because it helps, you know, for these mental health issues to be less stigmatized. Right. And for anybody out there who is suffering alone, I mean, definitely there is help out there. You guys, there's resources. You have the national, you know, suicide hotline. Uh, and that phone number is 1-800-273-8255. Definitely reach out. There's always people. I don't know. I was talking to somebody yesterday about it. Like the internet is, is beautiful for that aspect. It's a curse. It, it's gross too, but it's also a blessing because you're so connected to everybody and you can always find somebody to talk to about literally anything and everything, anything that you love, you can find somebody to talk to them about. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, well, thank you for introducing your podcast. That was a, that was that was lovely. And I'm glad that you're helping people because that is a very, that's something that we need in the world, you know, more of that positivity, more, more people helping people, you know? Yeah. I mean, again, I'm like, I posted, I hope it helps someone. I hope it helps somebody to feel less alone. Cause that's really what it's about. I'm talking about things through the filter of my own life, my day to day struggles, because I also feel like it's important. You know, a lot of there's a lot of false positivity out there, too, where people are just telling you to smile and be happy. And sometimes like you're not happy. And I think like a lot of mental health also stems from like trying so hard to keep things inside that they come out in other ways. And so I'm like perfectly free on there to talk about when I'm not feeling great, how it's affecting me, how it affects people around me, um, you know, whatever it is, whether I'm happy, whether I'm sad, whether I'm, you know, a dark place, I talk about it all, you know, so um, for that reason, in the hopes that, you know, look, if you if you aren't feeling positive, if you if you don't have a smile to give to the world, that is okay. Right. And that's the hard part too, is that 
like that's where you get manifestations of addictions and you know weird habits or and i don't mean weird in the sense that it's bad but just weird habits you know you get your ocds and stuff like that and it's like and it all stems from some kind of trauma or something that you haven't dealt with that's why people deal with um you know, with their mental problems with food or alcohol or drugs, whatever the case is, they're numbing something. Absolutely. Numbing something, refocusing on something, because the reality is sometimes you go through something that's so harrowing and so traumatic and you don't have the coping skills to deal with it. You're, you cannot deal with it because you don't know how it was that insane it was that intense it was that like unique or whatever that you don't actually know how to process it you don't know how to deal with it through dealing with it or trying to confront it your body your mind would shut down so in an effort and it's so funny and so kind of interesting that duality is because a lot of times your mental health disease or problem or illness stems from your mind trying to protect you from the trauma that you've experienced, right? Like, you know, making you numb and depressed and things like that enables you not to deal with any of those emotions or confront that trauma. You just sort of shut down in the same way that your anxiety is like, you know, doing the same sort of thing. Like, I can't go there. I can't do this. So that you will, you become avoidant and then you're just not dealing with those things because it's too much, you know, and so it's it, a lot of it is in an effort, I think, um, to help you to to protect you. Um, but it's so it's so overwhelming that and it becomes, you know, because it's continuous, it becomes debilitating. I agree 100 percent. So if anybody out there wants to go check out Stress, Depressed and Anxious, live through the eyes of her life and the problems that she goes through, just know that you're not alone. So on that note, and it's funny because I was kind of seeing similarities like dealing with true crime and where these serial killers or just really just these heinous crimes that happen. There's a lot of mental health that isn't dealt with with these people. And so had you heard of Patrick Wayne Kearney before this episode? No. So I heard of the name Patrick Wayne Kearney. It definitely rang a bell, but I hadn't heard really of any of the crimes or like the specifics of the crimes that he committed. So this episode was really, really interesting. Right. And so one of the things is it was a whole different time. Right. And I know we use that as a crutch. It doesn't excuse it, but it was a different time. And so he was a homosexual in the sixties and seventies when homosexuality really wasn't accepted. It wasn't something that people, in fact, you would pretty much be stoned to death if you came out as homosexual, right? Right. But the interesting part to me, to be honest, was like the fact that he was, it was so weird because, you know, it starts off with him having been a child and, and you, you say in the episode that like he um, was otherwise presented as straight, but then, um, you know, people were making fun of his sexuality but then he became a homosexual. Then he was also targeting homosexuals. So it was like, it was very strange because he was almost like punishing himself in a way. It was very odd, like his choice to me of victims. Cause it's almost like, yeah, like he want he had, he had fantasies of torturing the people that sort of bullied him, but 
that wasn't represented in in a lot of his victims because it was like for the most part a lot of it was was fellow homosexuals so it was weird right and i wonder if it was something of like a self-hatred you know <clears throat> probably his maybe his dad because it, it i know like parents at least in my experience when i was growing up you know dealing with i think about it now dealing with like my grandparents and my aunts and uncles their mindset was completely different and you know it was one of those things that like you you didn't talk about things and you didn't express emotions you didn't expect you know express any kind of you know emotions at all whether it be happy sad you know whatever it was so i'm wondering if it wasn't something where he started exploring his sexuality at, at a young age maybe his dad caught him something like that and was like bro you like beat the shit out of him and was like you can't do this you know and so then it started this kind of a, a cycle of self-hatred plus he was getting picked on at school and you know bullying has a profound effect on a kid like we as a not even a society we as a species want to be accepted by our peers regardless whether it's it's good or bad we still want that acceptance and when you get bullied at school that kind of drives you to fuck i'm not good enough you know what i mean absolutely i, I thought also in the episode like you had mentioned um that a lot of serial killers have this um I guess, prototype where they're just coming from broken homes or abusive homes. And I thought that was interesting, too, because you were saying that, you know, as far as everyone knows, like for Patrick, that that, you know, that was different. But I'm like, you know, there's different definitions to me of like abuse. And although like maybe there was no physical abuse or anything like that, like you said, just now there are different ideals that our parents have you know, um, you had mentioned that hit how his dad taught him to, um, uh, yeah, kill pigs at such a young age, which, you know, I guess like for their lifestyle could be normal, or maybe it's just a little too much. And then on top of that, like, there's no knowledge of the, yeah, he was getting bullied, but what did his parents do about it? Did they know about it? Like, were they also saying things to him? You know what I mean? Like, who knows what was actually going on in terms of like, not beyond physical, like verbal, like maybe they didn't, you know, maybe they thought he seemed a little less than um, masculine and said things to him. Nobody knows that part of it too. Um, and I'm still just speculating, but I think that, you know, that there's room for that and then yeah like you said bullying is huge has it i, I it's so funny because um i just recorded an episode not too long ago with with another guest and we were talking about her experience having been bullied because she had you know some disabilities growing up and was just widely not accepted um by her peers and she was so emotional about it and still as an adult dealing with it and in had a has a still has a hard time with it and yeah you're absolutely right like people for me personally I, I it's not so much acceptance that I care about like I could give a shit about <laughs> accepting anything <laughs> but it's almost just like the right to be right because even if you have no friends and you're you know you're in school whatever as long as people leave you the fuck alone and like don't um, harass you 
I think generally like people could probably, you know, it sucks maybe for some people who care as much about friendships, but you could probably deal with just being a loner versus like people actually being cruel to you and being mean to you. And I think that's the problem there is like people harass you for being different. And it's so odd too, as a species that like during our formative years, especially, um, we, it's like, it's like how your immune system functions in a sense, like we attack anything that looks different or seems to be different. Um, when we're kids all the way up into adolescence it's not really until high school that you start to like be like okay you know you're different whatever you know what I mean like as children we're like you're different let's attack that thing like and this is without any outside influence either like it's just like kids just do it like a lord of the flies type shit yeah 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 and that's something that and I don't maybe acceptance isn't the right word but I mean and and Growing up, I was a loner, so I it didn't really bother me either, but nobody fucked with me either. So it's not like I had that that bullying aspect in my life, but it's still one of those things that you still, I think deep down inside somewhere, it's you don't want to fit in, but at the same time, you're like, okay, just, I don't know, man. It's so hard because kids are brutal. Like you said, from the beginning, from when you're, I can think back to when I was a kid and it's just like, you don't really know, you don't know what you don't know until you know it, you know? Yeah. Sometimes I wonder if I was ever perceived as a bully. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm serious because as a kid and it was unintentional, but as a kid, like I was very, um, and I meant, I mentioned trust at some point, but I was very distrustful as a kid, like just five years old going into kindergarten like I was supremely distrustful of everyone and um I found myself like I was I was going off of vibes if you will like I was going off of how people made me feel and that's how I chose friendships like it had nothing to do with anything other than like the feeling that I got by being around somebody if I particularly have have that connection with them I was like okay I want this person to be my friend but I was very discriminating about it like I was like okay if I don't have this certain like vibe from this person if I don't get this certain you know feeling of connection with someone then I don't want anything to do with them and I was very like okay these two three people like I can have my personal trusted circle to color with, you know what I mean? But like everyone else I wanted nothing to do with. And there were so many kids who, you know, would come up to me and would like try to be friends with me. And I was like, no. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, maybe I scarred somebody for life. And then on top of that, like I was very like um, one of those uh, little girls who was just, because everybody at that time too was just like, oh, boys rule, girls drool, or, you know, all those little things. And like, you know, there was the, the battle between boys and girls. And I was very much like, I, I grew up in New Jersey and we had like this huge, like, I guess like a lot of beehives around, like, you know, killer bees and stuff like that. And what would happen every recess was that somebody would kick it or do something and it would, all the bees would get released. And then we just all run for our lives and recess would end early. And I remember, I remember this boy and his name was Richie or Rich or something like that. And I remember one day he came up to me and he was telling me that he liked me or that he thought I was pretty. And I was immediately like, oh, gross. So disgusted by it. Like, and I pushed him into the beehive and ran. 
I, you know what I mean? Like, what if I scarred him for life? Like, what if he's like one of these psycho? Like, you know what I mean? Like, geez, man. I was like, damn, was I a bully? Um. <laughs> <laughs> but see, that's that's like that whole uh, that oh, if she hits you, she likes you kind of shit. You know what I mean? Yeah, but like, I didn't like him. I was like. <laughs> I didn't like him at all. I was like, because I again, I was at that age where I thought like boys were so gross, and that you know that whole thing of like, oh my god, like you know, I don't know. You got the cooties. Cooties were popular, you know. Like <laughs> it was that's how I felt. I was like, I was insulted by the fact that he was like, oh, I, I think you're pretty. I was like, you're what like, the first heck? Of all, no. no, like gross. Yeah, so gross. And then like he just ha- he just happened to be next to the beehive. So unfortunately, from him like push him into the beehive and run for my freaking life. Right. Well, and it's funny, too, because that that brings us to a point in the story where he meets pretty much one of the only people that ever stuck around in his life in David Hill. You know, when he enlisted into the military, he didn't have a whole lot of friends. And I wonder if part of his facade was trying to, uh, you know, gain acceptance by enlisting into the military and, you know, and he just happened to find, you know, a friend in, in, in the military and by friend, I mean a lover, you know? Absolutely. I mean, that, that's scary for me too, because I'm like, damn, yeah. Like people like that can enlist into the military. Like (laughs) it could be be anywhere doing anything, you know, here he is. He comes home. He's a, he's a killer, you know, and he's learned all of these, um, skills i guess you know um so that makes it even worse and it's it was so funny i remember um i was watching a stand-up i think it was like dave Chappelle or someone and they were saying like uh how schools now have to do you know in america have to do the um the shooter drill or the active shooter uh, practice and he was like you know usually the actor shooter is a student so you're also training the actor shooter on I mean, you're not wrong. (laughs) It sort of reminds me of that. It's like, damn, like, yeah, they could just go to the military and 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 learn all of these extra skills to use for evil. But yeah, um, to your point, I could see that. Yeah, being a time where um, he found that one person, which is interesting too, like who you gravitate towards. Because like, I remember my parents saying things like, you know, and a lot of people saying things like who who your friends are or a reflection of who you are and you know at, at certain points in my life I was just kind of like roll my eyes like whatever <laughs> you know what I mean like <laughs> but do you know exactly but it's like uh, when when you get to be a little older and you start to reflect it is actually very true the people that that you attract and who gravitate towards you and who you pick to be your friends are in fact a reflection of who you are at the time because they have to share some similar interest in order for you guys to be friends or, you know, you have to agree on a lot of things for you guys to have had, you know, a friendship. So they are in fact a reflection of who you are. And so I find it funny, not funny, but interesting that David was, David Hill was the one who became his friend and how dysfunctional they were. And, and the fact that David Hill had a personality disorder as well, like that is all so very interesting to me because, you know, these types of people attract each other. Right. And that's another thing is to, it, I think they, and 
it says personality disorder and I, and I don't know for sure it's pure speculation, but I wonder if his personality disorder was his homosexuality. Like maybe they found out that these two were fucking around and that's what caused them to get kicked out because for a long time, homosexuality was considered a mental disorder. You know what I mean? Like that's where, and I'm glad the narrative on that has changed even just since I was a kid. Um, it's changed dramatically. Now it's not where it should be, but it's definitely changed. So maybe that's where that personality quote unquote disorder came from was the fact that he was a homosexuality and the military found out. It could in fact be absolutely, or it could be anything, a number of things, you know what I mean? So yeah, that's yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, but you know, and then they end up living in, and you brought up a good point in the dysfunctionality of these two, you know, they were both married at the time they ended up getting divorces and they moved to California together. And it's one of those things that what, in your opinion, do you think David Hill knew what Patrick Kearney was doing before, like during all of this? Do you think he had any clue? Yeah, absolutely. You know, two things there. One that also chilled me, gave me the chills because I was like, he was married. Imagine being David or, or Patrick Kearney's ex-wife. Like, you know, like that sucks, man. Um, that That's just so creepy and gross. I just like, oh, um, and then but probably being thankful for your life. Like, geez, the fact that like, <laughs> I mean, probably, probably thankful that you're a woman, right? And not a guy. Yeah, that he wasn't interesting in like in, in like killing you, or that maybe like you didn't have children with him. Like, thank goodness for that. Um, but on the flip side of that, yeah, like I think that he absolutely knew because you know you live with someone, and yeah, like sure you could avoid. And there's a lot. There's a lot of stories of serial killers or killers, in fact, like their family has no clue, whatever. But the type of things that he was doing, I just think that like if they were if they were living together and he would have at least known probably a lot about his history, he would have known like about his sexual interest. You know what I mean? Because in some way, shape or form, like your sexual interest will come out, um, I think, over the course of a relationship, like you may not say like outwardly like oh this is what i'm into but like what you look at and what you gravitate towards and some of the things that you say in a sexual nature will more than likely clue someone in on like what arouses you and i think that at that even that small thing i think that david would have known and would have been aware of and then the fact that they were so back and forth too why you know yeah you could say just argument argument about what you know what I mean? And like the fact that you were saying too in the episode, like that's a lot of times where he would go out on his rampages and things like that. Maybe he had a yearning to do that. And David was a hundred percent aware about that. So yeah, I think he knew absolutely. And then, and then even just, you know, jumping ahead though, but like at the end of the story where like he had that boy come over to meet him fishy, you know, yeah. and it just happens to be there and it happens to fit Patrick's prototype. Like, come on. Yeah. Yeah. That's definitely, I, I went back and forth on it I, because you do hear of a lot of, you know, people or families or significant others that had no idea that, that, and I don't know if it's denial or if they just truly didn't know. Um, but 
I, I always go back and forth, but the last victim really set it in stone for me that he he knew. He had some form of knowledge. He couldn't have been with him for this long and not known what he was doing. You know what I mean? Yeah. And 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 you describe the amount of victims, like um, he was clearly out of control. So I feel like that would have come out too. And then the fact that he ran off with him. You know, um, you can't have known at that point. I mean, you can't not have known at that point. You definitely know um, after running off with him. Because because if anything, you would have been like, oh, oh, my God, like this is what you were doing. You would have been horrified. You definitely wouldn't have run off with him. You know, so, yeah, he he knew. And this guy was depraved, too. I mean, I I don't know what drives somebody to it, but necrophilia is not... I don't know. That's something that I can't even remotely understand. That's just gross to me. It's absolutely gross. And it is, you know, that's what I'm saying. Like something as extreme and depraved as that, like that's going to come out in for, in my opinion, you know, um, in a relationship, like as far as what you're into, because that's like so far off off the grid that it's like, okay, this is going to come out in some way, you know, that this is what you're into. Um, And yeah, it's horrifying. and I think that there is some um, sick thing of like, you know, being in control too that that plays a factor in it. And it, going back to like just in real life, um, real life being like our daily lives, like with anyone, um, anybody who has, and I, I encounter this a lot, like at work, right? So like you, you have your colleagues and things like that. I And I think anybody who number one desire is control there to me have always been very scary people like even in like you know what i'm saying like even in even if they're not serial killers but they are very scary people those are the people i think that are capable of doing really really messed up things to other people because they don't they're not motivated as much by money or by you know anything that we can a lot of people can really relate to they're more motivated by having control over others which is a desire that I can never understand because I'm like having control over another person to me isn't fun it's boring because if you're only doing something because I'm telling you to do it or I'm making you do it like why like that, that after, you know, maybe for you know first five minutes of Simon Says, right? But like after a while, um, it's just kind of like whatever, like you're you're controlling this person. So it doesn't matter and, and it becomes very boring and the world would be a very boring place in, to me in that regard. I like to just see what people do on their own. And control also to me is just exhausting because it's like, you know, I don't want to be in charge of like what everybody does. That's That's exhausting to me. So the whole thing... It, it always has like made me, I don't know. It's like, I don't get why people are so obsessed with power. But if we look around really world leaders, politicians, people who have done horrible things over the course of history, they have a hundred thousand percent been motivated by wanting control over people in general. Like even dictators, when you see how corrupt they can be, it's like, you're rich, you're this, you're that, you're important. What is motivating you here? Oh, you just want control. You know, and so that to me is something that is very scary and can lead people down very dark paths in general, like wanting power and control over other people. Right. I mean, that's a that's a very valid point. You can look at social media as like a prime example of that. We're no longer people. You're not 
summer. I'm not Kevin. We are number. We're a number like face, like Facebook, like all these different social media platforms. They want control over being able what they can show us. And all we are is a number and we're data now. You know what I mean? And that's crazy to me. Yeah, wanting to be able to predict behavior patterns and things like that for consumer benefit. Like it's, it is something that can lead to very, very dark things again. Like, but yeah, I think that's like, like even when you break it down, no matter what avenue of life, but like go even going towards sex and things like that, that's where a lot of sexual fantasies can get very depraved when there is a power play involved. Like a lot of people in the BDSM community will probably say, you know, if you're listening, you'll probably be like, wait, well, hey, so I'm not, you know, sometimes this is fun. I get that. But like, I feel like this is also, that's where you can take that turning point into it being like, wait, like very, very dark. You know what I mean? Is, is when you're trying to have, when it comes into like power play control over someone else, like all of that can go, so far left and yeah (laughs) it's just weird it's weird it's a weird thing to like want like i don't know it is and for him to be able to repeat the process over and over again so many times it's inhumane right it's so that's why you said monster and things like that and i'm like it is otherworldly because the the idea that because because again like and and this is why I think they separated out in the courts right where where it's meditated and premeditated, um and then you know just kind of like passion kills and things like that because I think us most normal human beings can understand um, a crime of passion you're angry in the moment you're heated in the moment you have access to a gun you shoot somebody you know what I mean and you regret it and whatever and it was just very like in the moment. But because I think that we all can relate to like reacting in the moment, maybe you wouldn't choose someone, but you know what I'm saying? Like it's very possible. But when you think about somebody premeditating something and like actually having the stomach to carry it out, that becomes very different. And then the more sick the crime is, that also lends itself to being otherworldly. And like you said with him, he did something, not only did he premeditate it, do carry it out did something so depraved he does it over and over and over again which is why serial killers are looked at differently like you do you do it over and over and over again and you're totally able to live with yourself the fact that he could go to sleep at night is otherworldly you know because it's like how could you and and like you've described one of his victims eight years old like you know what i mean like it, it didn't matter to him how old or whatever um he was doing that and he was totally fine with himself and that is where it becomes like damn like that's the exploration that I want to be honest with you it's like what's going on there um you know because something's up (laughs) yeah I don't it's 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 hard to imagine that the the and it's that lack of of empathy you know of being able to lay your head down at night and go to sleep and, and get up the next day like nothing had happened it's that it's that it's just that age old question like what makes somebody be able to do that like I couldn't live with myself if I am you know overly you know short with somebody at the end of the day I'm like fuck I, you know, I'm like, I'm beating myself up about it, but it's like tomorrow it's, it's a new day, but it's like, I'm not fucking killing people either though. 
Yeah, exactly. And then and still be able to be around other people. You know, like you mentioned his job and things like that. This man was going to work and he, he, he had all these colleagues and he's probably having coffee with them. And it is so bizarre because if you're able to function around other people and still do that, I mean, not even animals in my in eyes can do that because if they are a predator animal, and they're around what they consider to be prey. They just attack. Like it's not, you know what I mean? Hungry or not, they're going to attack. They're going to bite. They're going to do something. But the fact that you're able to just be around other people and even have a relationship with David, even, you know, who's a living, breathing human being, and then still carry out these acts towards other fellow human beings, that is crazy. And even when you say like he ran, they ran off to his family and stuff like that. Even the fact that he does have, you know, family members that he could actually run off to, um, you know, and 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 talk to them and things like that. Probably could go home for the holidays, whatever it was. You know, that is so really, really otherworldly bizarre. And it definitely reminds you of the monster under your bed because it's the only person or the only thing that you could could relate something like that with is something hiding in your closet. You know what I mean? Right. And you brought up, you know, like his work and he wasn't, it's not like he was working at like a McDonald's. He was an engineer at Hughes aviation. I mean, like this, how many plane crashes were probably caused by him. Right. Like (laughs) what, like what was his day to day life? Like at work, you know, what was he thinking about? Was he thinking about the planes or was he thinking about killing people all day long? Right. Or is there a switch? Is there a separation between the two? Like, you know, is is he a night predator? Is it only like to act <laughs> in the night? Like what is going on there? You know, right. like that is bizarre. And I think too, part of some of why I think maybe he's able to separate it. And I've heard it from, you know, through research and stuff, but he ended up testing with an extremely high IQ. And I know Which it's I hard. So interesting. I love that because I always, that's another thing too, that I think um, can be very dangerous, right? Like the, the awareness that you have, um, not even, not even with a high IQ, just even negating that part of just being so smart, but it's like, like intelligence level. It's like the self-awareness that you have, because there are so many times in my life, because I struggled with mental health illnesses, that I I always think to myself that it would be so much easier if I was less aware, less self-aware. You know what I mean? Because if you're less self-aware, you can be less self-conscious. You can, you know, every little thing doesn't bother you as much. Um, You can, even even if like people are making fun of you or whatever, you are less aware of it because there's some people who are not very self-aware, who don't do a lot of self-reflection, who go through an entire day and go home and relax and go to sleep. And they never spend time thinking about the activities that have happened in the day, the conversations that they have, they never reflect on them. And that's why people encourage you to do self-reflection so you can improve yourself. But there's a lot of people out there that just, they don't do that. Um, And they have less they suffer less because like where people say ignorance is bliss. They suffer less because they're less self-aware. And I feel like that self-awareness um, 
makes you notice not not only things about yourself, like I said, but things that are happening around you, things that are happening in the world, how people move, like what they say and what they say about other people. And it affects you so much more the more self-aware you are, because even if you're, even if it's in a good way, even if you're empathetic, even if you're a, a person who empathizes with other people, it affects you greatly. The world affects you so much more greatly. And it just depends on what you're noticing or what you're choosing to pay the most attention to. Maybe you are so self-aware and, and very aware person and you're paying attention to the homeless on the street all the time or um, whatever. Or maybe you're very self-aware and, and aware of your surroundings and everything like that and you're paying attention to how people treat one another and so bad and the world is so corrupt and da 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 And you might have heard other people talk like this. That affects you. Like, I think the world and its impact affects you a lot greater the more aware you are. And the less aware you are, the better, to me, the better the experience in a sense. Like, you experience less, but it's less painful as well. And it it always brought me back to, like, the whole, like, not to get real religious, <laughs> but, like, the, it brought, it brings me back to the whole Adam and Eve story because the apple to me always represented, like, the, the whole story of it, whatever, even if you don't believe in that stuff, like, it always represented to me, like, um, the apple being, like, oh, you're totally now aware of yourself and now you, you can make decisions and now things are going to affect you in a greater way. Um, and that awareness makes it really hard to just live totally peacefully and blissfully, right? Because now you're aware of everything. And so, yeah, like that's what it made me think of is, is, is just the fact that like him having that high IQ makes him so much more aware in, and I feel like he probably experiences the world or experienced the world in its impact in a huge way. And whatever he chose to pay attention to, which is probably something very negative, like affects him a lot more. Maybe he noticed how, how people were like treating and talking about homophobic people a lot more. You never know. Um, but it seems to have affected him greatly. And he, and he didn't even care to rob pe- like people of their children, their childhood. And maybe he felt like he was robbed too. And he just expressed that angrily. I, wow. That was, I couldn't have even said that even better myself. Cause that is, that is true. When you are self-aware, the world is a very hurtful place. And it, it it's not that it's a hurtful place, but you deal with a lot more distress because you're always worrying about, you know, am I doing this right? Am I doing that wrong? Or, you know, did I hurt this person? Did I not hurt this person? Like it, it's, it's a struggle every day. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And it, your, your emotions are heightened and it makes things very hard. And again, if you choose to be angry about it, you're very angry. Like, you know, <laughs> so it, yeah, it, I think that that plays into it for sure. And then um, your intelligence, just the intelligence part of it can make you very harsh because even me, okay. And not to toot my own horn, not that I think that I'm like, I have a super high IQ or something. But being around people that have a smaller IQ than me, or not even IQ, I shouldn't say, because I am—I don't know what my IQ is. But like being around somebody who's just not that smart and trying to get something done, like in my day-to-day life, it frustrates me. It's very frustrating to try to explain something to somebody who's not understanding it. And I think like the higher your intelligence, the more of a burden it becomes to ex- try to explain something 
to people who don't get it. And you start to see people as just idiots. Like, I don't know. Um, <laughs> no, seriously. Like, no, I, like if, <laughs> I'm just laughing because I can, I relate to this on a much deeper level than you'll ever know. But go ahead. I'm listening. <laughs> no, it is. It is true. Like, and it, it could be just down to a certain subject that you have down or whatever. Um, you're trying to express and your your vision or like a, where you're coming from to people who can never understand it and not compute it. And it makes it so like it makes it such a it takes such a toll on you, makes it such a burden. You can't relate to the people around you and your intelligence can make you very harsh and unkind. Like because if you don't have there's different types of intelligence. And if you don't have like if you have a lot of um, I guess book smarts or whatever, like you're very intelligent in that way. And then you don't have a lot of emotional intelligence that could make you so cruel, cold, harsh, unkind so easily. Not, you know what I mean? Because emotional intelligence, I think is something that some people are have naturally, they're naturally born with it. And it also gets nurtured in your childhood too and promoted sometimes a lot of people have that more than they have any other kind of intelligence and it, that also does help. But some sometimes people, again, have that that book smart sort of intelligence, a lot of it. And then if you don't have that emotional intelligence with it, you will be so frustrated with the people around you, with the world. Like, it's like nobody gets it. It's, you feel like nobody gets it and it's like so annoying everybody's so stupid and, like, and you feel you're you you're, you're, you're you feel everybody's less than and, and I don't know how else to explain it but I've experienced it on a micro scale and I can relate to that like feeling like every, you're so fucking dumb you know <laughs> <laughs> it's one of those things that I think it comes down to where something you can see literally in front of you, even though the task hasn't been completed or whatever you're doing hasn't been done, you can see it completed. You know the path. You, you, you've experienced it enough that you know the direct path to get it done. And so that comes where somebody else who doesn't think the way that you do, and whether it be analytically or emotionally or whatever the case is, you are looking at it, okay, I am I can see it, it's done, let's do it this way. And for whatever reason, they're not understanding you. That is extremely frustrating, and I deal with that on the day-to-day, every day, and I fucking hate it. Yeah, absolutely. I remember um, growing up, like, as a gifted kid, um, again, not to do my own harm, but just to explain, like, I was a gifted kid when it came to, like, things like reading, writing. I was in a lot of gifted programs, and um, I was able to learn a lot about the world through research and through, like, the things that I read, um, and fictional or non-fictional, like, just different things that ca- different characters went through. I, f- I was able to I felt like as if I was experiencing those things and I was able to learn from them and I was able to have like intelligent conversations about them at a very young age, which made people think I was really smart. Um, But at the same time, like I remember understanding certain things because of that, like, because I'd read all these different things for different, you know, uh, points of view and feeling like as if I understood something so simple and I would be talking to my mom and be expressing my frustration that somebody else doesn't just see it. Like, how do they see this? You know? And she would always say to me, um, you know, people 
don't see things as they are, basically. They see, or as, as it is, they see it as they are. So you can only see things, you don't see things through exactly what it is. You see it through the lens of like your experiences and who you are. Um, and that's why people see things so differently. And she, and it took me uh, years, like even into my young adulthood, all the way, you know, from my childhood to really even remotely tune into what she was trying to tell me um, because I was like, I, I just don't understand like why people, you know, do this or do that, or I think like this. And she kept reminding me that people are very different and they think very differently. And your, uh, um, you don't get lend anything to a conversation or you won't help make anything different until you really understand that. Because when you understand that you can be more, um, patient and you can actually converse with people who are different from you. And she always told me to remember too, that no matter if somebody seems like really stupid and really dumb or whatever, there is something to, that you can learn from everybody. Everybody brings something different to the world. Um, and there's something you can really learn from every person. And so when that kind of sunk in for me, I was able to, um, it helped me in all aspects of my life. And even like at work, like I, like I'm able to see, like I have a team of people that I work with and, and I'm able to see, okay, start to think of people like not about what they can't do, but like, what are, what do they do well so that we can basically, I can utilize them. <clears throat> sorry. I can utilize them in a way of like play to their strengths basically. Um, and so anyways, like all that, just to say that, like, if you don't, if you, I think a real mark of like true intelligence and wiseness is knowing that like everybody brings something different to the table. And if you're trying to express something, you need to talk to who the person is and not necessarily as like what you're trying to, um, just what you're trying to get across. If that makes any sense at all. Yeah, um, no, 100% sense. Cool. Yeah. But I think that's definitely not what he did. <laughs> That is not what he did. What's your take on the death penalty? Do you think this man deserves to still be in prison or do you think he deserves to have been killed? Neither. I think that like what he is in is just like a purgatory in a sense. Like it doesn't matter if he's in prison. It matters to the rest of us. Like he's not out here killing everybody, but I don't think it makes any difference to me anyway for him being in prison. Um, and, or the death penalty, like either or to me is just like the death penalty. It, there's a finality to it. He's, he's done. And then there's like, you know, he's in prison and he's like sitting there. And I don't think if he doesn't feel any empathy and there's no rehabilitation, then there's no value in the prison and we're still paying for this guy to live. And then again, killing him, it's like, you know, who cares? Like he's killed countless people. Yeah, he maybe doesn't want to die, but then it's like it's over and it's done with. So if you're going to keep him alive or do anything with him at all, it would it would be to me beneficial to rehabilitate him. And try to even just trying to rehabilitate him and trying to get to the, you know what I mean? Otherwise, it's just stupid. <laughs> and then that's across the board for anybody. It's like, right. you know, I just don't, I don't get that. I think it's something that they definitely could have learned from him, you know, try to dissect what drove him. Uh, it's something that I feel like they probably could have gained a lot of useful information for for the future, you know, of trying to 
because we're always trying to predict human behavior and and markers and so on and so forth. But also from the mental health aspect of what made this man tick, you know, why is he the way that he is? I think they could learn a lot of, of knowledge. I don't necessarily think that he's somebody that can be rehabilitated, but I definitely think he's somebody that they could learn a lot of information from. That's interesting, too, because, like, if I got to sit across from from Patrick, the first thing I would ask him is why he doesn't want to die. Like, why did he why didn't he want the death penalty? Why doesn't he want to die? That's what I would ask him. Um, you know, because I feel like that would also help understand, like, his psychology is like, why, why are you somebody who's like, you know, <laughs> and it could just be as simple as like, because, OK, here's an example. I'm sure you've heard of Logan Paul or the Paul brothers. Unfortunately, and stuff like that. yes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, exactly. And Logan, who was made, you know, super famous for what he did with filming a dead dead body um, in the uh, Japan suicide forest or what's known as a suicide forest um, and y- uploading that on YouTube and everybody seeing it. Um, but I remember watching his podcast and um, he was talking about the fact that like, after that had happened and everything, like he got a lot of, you know, death threats and all these things. And one of the things that a lot of people were saying to him that scared, like chills him till this day. And is one of the reasons why he doesn't want to die is because he's afraid of people filming him. If he were to die, like he's very afraid of that, like somebody filming him. Um, and that's like one of his like t- number one fears. Um, and so I found that very interesting because perhaps that's probably it could be what Patrick would answer is like because he committed these um, acts after like basically dismembering the person and um, you know doing all these necrophilic acts to the person afterwards like it could just be his fear that somebody will also do it to him which is very interesting because that starts to bring you back to um, somehow being empathetic if you can be empathetic towards yourself and you can have that sense of like I don't want this to happen to me because that's very selfish, right? Like, I don't want this to happen to me. Then we can start down the path of like, then you don't want this to happen, like starting you down the path of you not wanting this to happen to other people. Because if you don't care what happens to you, I feel like that's a dead end. But if you do give a shit about what happens to you, then you can start to understand that you are also a human. Somebody else is also a human. And so if you care, if you don't want this to happen to you, then let's now think about somebody else. And then he, you know, to me, if I had to predict something, I'd probably think that he would you know, start to think about like, I don't give a shit about anybody else. Nobody's ever gave a shit about me. And then now we can talk about that. You know what I mean? Like, so in a sense, like, I, I know you feel like he couldn't be rehabilitated, but I think like, it just depends on, I don't know, like his true thoughts and, and how he, how, how he feels, you know, because people, so you know how people are like, so you kill all those people and you do all these things, people start to talk to you and treat you like a hundred percent, like you're totally not human. Um, and even though, cause, uh, obviously it comes of what you did, but the questions they may be asking him and the things that they may be bringing up and how they uh, move around him, it may not be with that in mind. Cause they probably all feel the same way too. Like he could definitely hundred percent never be rehabilitated. Right. And that's a very valid point. And I've, I guess I've never thought about it from that way. The way I, 
way I was looking at it was, you know, because you also have to think about all of the different families, right? Like how fair would it be for the families for them to invest time to rehabilitate them? Like what about all of their loved ones? You know what I mean? That's the perspective that I'm taking. But as far as the perspective that you brought, I mean, that is a very valid point and that's not, it's not invalid because once you are labeled something and that's not just being labeled a serial killer, but once you have a label, right, if somebody in their mind has labeled you as something that is now how they treat you, whether it be positive or negative, that's how they're going to treat you from that point forward. Yeah, they put you in a box. And even even this rehabilitation I'm talking about, it's to the benefit of these victims and of these families, because him living and not caring about what he does, what he did is... Um, a never-ending string of pain. If somebody kills you or kills um, somebody that you care about and they truly, and you know this, they truly don't, don't care about what they did. They'll describe it to you in detail. They don't blink. They don't care about your feelings or how anybody felt or how that person felt. That is, you're never going to get any sort of closure from that and you're never going to feel good about that. Like, that's horrible. But if he was able to be rehabilitated, what that would do is make him feel the gravity and the pain of what he did, you know, which I think it does uh, truly honor those victims because then he's able to process like, oh my God, you know, I've done something so heinous and something so horrifying. And that I think is, is beneficial hundred thousand um, percent to, to the families of those victims. Damn. That's a, and that, you know what, I've never thought about it like that. And that's why that's a very interesting point because living with the gravity of what your actions have caused is far exceeds any punishment that can be dealt out, you know, in, in the earthly realm, I guess, as you can say it, because your mental health or your mental aspect of it you know, far exceeds your mental pain, I should say, far exceeds what actually happened because now you have to live with it. And that's a very, I've never thought about it like that. I like that. Yeah, that's, that's to me is what makes living, going on living harsher than a death penalty because you feel what you've done. You know what I mean? And I think that's like sometimes, you know, the intention of making somebody, you know, just kind of stay alive and, and have to suffer with what you did in jail. But that only works if they care about it. And, you know, from everything that you said in the show and, and what's known, he doesn't have that, you know, um, and so he doesn't care. And so that's why he wants to live that because if you cared about what you did and you understood the gravity of what you did, you definitely would not actually want to live with it. Um, so yeah, that's, that would be, to me, that would be a win. And it also would be, you know, um, at somebody like him, like I would have him go talk to other people who are new, you know, newly found serial killers who've done these things. I'd rather have him go and talk to them about how he arrived to that conclusion of, of, um, actually feeling and caring and, and helping out with that until the end of his days, because, I think that would help other people um, as well. And yeah. Well, thanks for coming on. Do you have any final thoughts before we get out of here today? Um, well, I would say that, again, 
it chilled it chilled me to my core that you know uh, these people definitely exist in the world <laughs> and they're lurking in every corner um so i would just say take care of yourself actually i wanted to tell, tell one last little anecdote there was a time in my life where i was living in maryland and so um one of the, like one of the things growing up you know stranger danger obviously you know you don't want to um, get in into that. And I remember growing up, me and my brother, we would walk to school together. And school was like, I don't know, like less than 10 minutes away. It was like right up the street and a whole bunch of neighborhood kids would walk to school. And still, you know, my mom was very precautious. My parents were really precautious. This is in the 90s. And so she would always tell us like, you know, no matter who tells you to get in, you know, get in the car, I don't care if they say that they know me or that they know your father or that I I said that you could like she she would give us like this whole rundown like do not ever get into the car with anybody um don't talk to them keep walking like she would just give us that whole rundown right and she would just say like you know even if somebody knows your name whatever so me and my brother would walk to school together and there was countless occasions where this happened where people would be like hi and then you just say our names and they'd say you know they don't like this happened all the time and we you know we never never scared but we just knew what to do we're like no my mom told us not to talk to strangers no i don't know you just keep walking okay and i didn't think about this until like again like uh, earlier adulthood where i you know just started thinking about it but anyways in early adulthood when i was in maryland living with maryland it was a cold day just to set the scene, it was a very, very cold winter day. And I was at a laundromat because I had to go, you know, wash my clothes. And I was sitting outside because the laundromat was so full. And it was like a Saturday or something, I think it was. Just like this. So creepy. Um, <laughs> and, then, and then I was sitting outside the laundromat and just like, you know, um, just cold and there was this guy he was he was he came in he was doing his laundry whatever and I remember him kind of sitting down and um because I was outside on the bench kind of sitting down talking to him whatever and at some point in the conversation and this is an older gentleman he's probably like in his 50s 60s I don't know probably his 50s mid 50s and he was just you know very nice and he was like um like he's like oh yeah I could go for a cup of coffee I was like yeah me too all they have inside is like the vending machine and stuff like that and there was like this um Wawa like right across like I would say like two three blocks away and he was like oh well I'm gonna go to um Wawa and get some coffee do you want to come and I was like yeah I guess so you know what I mean <laughs> uh no actually no that's not what he asked sorry he was like first he was like I'll get you like what do you want you know, like, and, and I told him, I was like, yeah, I could just get a regular coffee, whatever. And he was like, well, come, come with me. I don't want to just, you know, get whatever. Just come with me. It's right, you know, right up there. And I don't know, because I never in my life have gotten, because like I told you, very distressful, blah, blah, blah. I never in my life have gotten to a car with anybody that I didn't know. I don't know what possessed me. To, I don't know if I was just too cold and like not thinking. I don't know what possessed me to just do something like that, Right. So I get into this car with this guy, okay? And we go, it's two blocks away, we go to the Wawa, okay? And he gets gas in his car and like he, he gets his coffee and I get my coffee and whatever. And we drive back to the laundromat. When we get to the laundromat, we're sitting in his car and we're talking and he's talking to me and he 
and and he starts to talk about like his ex-wife and he starts to talk about like some dark shit i'm not even gonna get into it okay but just like some dark shit that he experienced in his marriage in the whole time okay this is like sitting in his car this is when i'm like uh, what the fuck am i doing okay so but his the doors in the car are locked okay that's this one and i'm looking as he's talking to me and as the, as the conversation gets more like you know dark sides of his marriage and things like that um i'm looking into the laundromat because we're like right parked right there and there's this woman that works at the laundromat that, like she at this point like i had been there like every weekend so she knows me so I'm looking in there and she's looking at me and I'm looking at her and he's like, he turned, he turns to me. He's like, why, why do you keep looking over there? And oh. I was like, I don't know. <laughs> like, danger, danger. Will Robinson. Danger, danger. You know? And I was like, I don't know. Um, I was like, I was just looking in there because, you know, like she and I, you know, okay, she, you know, probably my clothes are probably ready. She knows me in there, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, oh, okay. And so he just keeps talking. I'm like, I should probably, you know, I'm trying to like wean myself away because part, like, there's a large part of me that just like wants to like unlock these freaking doors and like run for my fucking life. But then I kept thinking, like, I don't know what this guy has in his car, and I don't want to make any sudden moves to where like, you know what I mean? Like, he just speeds off or something. I want to like ease out of it. So that's what I was thinking. And then like, I was just like, yeah, she probably, and I like, she, I was like, she's probably like waiting, you know, cause I'm like, my clothes are probably ready. So like I waved to her and she like waves back at me <laughs> and I'm like, you know, I'm going to go. And so I, he's like, okay. Um, and he's like, um, I try to open the door. I think I try to open the door. He's like, oh, this lock doesn't, doesn't really work that well. Let me, um, I have to let you out. <gasps> and so he, right? okay. Right. And I feel my heart hammering. Like, I'm like, oh, my God. Like, he gets out of the car. He opens the door for me. I get out. And he's like, okay, do you do you normally, like, come here, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, oh, yeah, I usually come here. And I just, and after that, I was like, okay, bye, bye. First of all, I never went back there. But then <laughs> when I get out. I go in there. And, like, she was like, are you okay? Like that woman, she goes, are you okay? And I tell her what happened. She's like, oh my God, what, you know, no, don't get in the car with him, da, 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 whatever, don't do that ever, ever again. And I was like, I know, I don't know what I was thinking. Anyway, I got my clothes, I got the fuck out of there, okay? And I never, I obviously have never done that again. But I just want to say, that's the antidote I want to leave everybody with, don't fucking trust a single soul out there <laughs> ever in your fucking life. I don't care who it is. It could be Betty Crocker that, you know, not, like knocks at your door wants to offer you soup do not trust anybody um ever in your life because they all could be patrick and they all could be out to kill you and sodomize you so don't do it (laughs) 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 it could happen you know it really could and i still think about that to this day that like that could have been me you could have been doing a true crime story about me right now that easily could have been me the fucking idiot he was gets into the car with some stranger and we go wawa up the street bitch you can fucking walk you know like stop don't do it oh man well on that note why don't you tell everybody where they can find your podcast (laughs) where they can get a hold of you at on all that good stuff 
Okay, once again, you can go to stressedoppressedandanxious.com. It'll give you links to everywhere that you can listen to podcasts. I'm everywhere, literally. Um, typically have episodes every Monday. You can also find me on Twitter at SD underscore anxious. That's S is in stressed, D is in depressed, underscore anxious on Twitter. Love you guys. And before we go, I have one question for you. Do you mind answering before we go? Sure. If you could be one sandwich condiment, what would you be and why? Mm, one sandwich condiment. I would be mayonnaise because without me, your bread is freaking dry and it sticks to the roof of your mouth. <laughs> so I'd probably just be mayonnaise and that's why. Uh, fair enough. Well, stress, depressed, and anxious would be mayonnaise. Again, thanks for listening. Thanks for coming on. And I'm glad we finally got to sit down and do this. I'm so glad to, too. Thanks for having me, Kevin. Have a good day. You too. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. And remember, you never know what's lurking in the shadows, lingering around the corner, walking past your house at night. So watch out, stay safe, and keep listening. This has been The Jury Room.